Hi there, and welcome to another episode of the STEM Everyday Podcast. Welcome to the STEM Everyday Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Chris Woods. Putting STEM into every classroom, every day. Well, thank you for joining us on this episode of the STEM Everyday Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Chris Woods, and today we get to chat with Brian Keating, um, you can find him on, on the web at briankeating.com or at Dr. Brian Keating on Twitter. Um, and he has a really interesting story, uh, but we're going to start by just introducing him. Uh, welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks, Chris. It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah. And um, you're, you're a physics professor at UC San Diego, and, and you're an astrophysicist. And, and, and to a lot of educators, those are some pretty high-sounding titles and, and maybe even a little bit confusing. So first off, why don't you just give us a little background, how you got excited about science in the first place and ended up as an astrophysicist? Yeah, so I, I realized that uh, when I was growing up, in retrospect, I realized that I was always really interested in, in science. And, and some of that's only come to me now that I've had children myself. We are blessed to have five children uh, mm -hmm. under age seven, which is pretty amazing. And <laughs> My five-year-old is, is basically the spitting image of me, both physically and mentally and temperamentally. <laughs> and, yeah. he, you know, I'll often see him, like, walking around, and he's got, like, a plastic test tube in his hands, and he's, he's mixing <laughs> water and, and baking soda. And, and he'll do the same experiment again and again. And, and I realize he, he does that because it gives him the same exact thrill that he got the first time he did it. And it really takes yeah. me back to when I was a kid. And I had those first kind of aha moments that really scientists live for, and and they come sort of slowly as slower as time goes on. Unfortunately, the bar to kind of raise your excitement level and endorphin level goes down as you become a little bit accustomed to the scientific discovery process. But you know, having kids and working with young kids and you know, barely older than than some of your listeners, you know, kind of students. Um, and so forth. And as a college professor, I see the excitement that comes when people first learn something. And I always had that. I always had the innate curiosity to understand, you know, what would happen if chemicals were mixed together? What would uh -huh. happen if, if I lowered the coefficient of friction in my, my mother's bathroom floor by spraying <laughs> her freshener and then seeing how far I could slide? Um, and I ended up on my face and got my <laughs> And then making my own, uh, you know, I won't, I won't, you know, say exactly what I did because I don't want to encourage any of the listeners out there right. to replicate these experiments. Suffice to say, I tried to synthesize certain uh, very powerful compounds in my, uh, you know, from readily available sources and, and nearly got injured more times than I can count. So I'm trying to prevent my, my children, you know, it's, it's a miracle that I emerged without any loss of digits. Uh, um, <laughs> but, but, but that... But that curiosity is is exactly what um, what drives so many people to become uh, involved in science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, and that that wonder, that curiosity, kids, that's such a great thing for them. Now, now your wonder and curiosity led you to to develop um, a crazy thing called a bicep, uh, and and you just missed out on a Nobel Prize. So so first off, tell tell us about what the bicep is. Yeah, so BICEP was an experiment that I created with collaborators at, at uh, California Institute of Technology, Caltech. After you get your PhD, if you want to become a professor at a research university like UC San Diego or similar universities, yeah. you often have to do a stint as a scientist um, 
uh, working in another scientist laboratory or research group, and that's called a postdoctoral fellowship or research uh, uh, position. So I was doing that at, at Caltech, and I was funded by the National Science Foundation for a fellowship. And along uh, the, around the time I started at Caltech, I came up with an idea with, with a collaborator of mine, Jamie Bach, uh, who's now a professor there. And our idea was to see if we could go back to the very beginning of time, to what's called the Big Bang, and explore the nature of how space and time might have sort of burst into existence in this mm -hmm. primordial flash of time, just a trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang, and sort of try to understand why is the universe, why does it look the way it does? Uh, and that's really the mission of a cosmologist, is to understand the cosmos, which is the universe. Okay. And that, that's a pretty big, uh, you know, that, that's a pretty <laughs> big topic to understand the universe. It doesn't mean understand every single thing that's in it. It doesn't even mean to right. understand all the different physical processes in the universe, but it does mean how did the universe come to be the way that we observe it today? And what might happen deep into the universe's history as time progresses? Um, and, and that is also comes along with it uh, a necessity to understand what is the universe made of? What are the particles, forces, the fields, the interactions? And, and these are really topics that have interested scientists and non-scientists for thousands of years. Right. Like even, even as far back as, you know, Galileo, um, and, and scientists like that realizing that, hey, the Earth isn't the center of the universe. And, and right. for a kid, you know, they're the center of the universe. But it's a big difference to, to start yeah. thinking about space and, and, and time. And those are big concepts for kids. And we discuss them in our classroom probably fairly frequently. Yeah, what's interesting about cosmology is that, so what you just described, you know, kind of thinking about the biggest picture topics that there are, um, that could be approached non-technically. So you, you could study the universe, think about the universe, and, and think about the certain paradoxes based on data that even a human being with no telescope whatsoever can acquire, uh, and all the more so when you have a telescope. But uh, what's nice about being a cosmologist is that going beyond the realm of philosophy, where thinking about kind of underlying laws, you can actually come up with a mathematical description of how the universe behaves, and then maybe some new ideas as to how it might behave. Maybe there are exotic things within the universe, like black holes and dark matter and so forth. And then your job is to work with other smart people and try to collect evidence. And that evidence then compares with the theory, and it refines our understanding of how the universe works. And so that's really the job that I find, part of the job I find so satisfying is that you can actually use tools, technology, and the most important, you know, kind of tool of all is the human brain. Yeah, that's, that's, that's that computer on the top of our shoulders that right. uh, we don't, we don't call it computers anymore, you know, but that's what the original computers were, people. That's right. Working, yeah, working. they exactly were. So, so you, you actually came up with, you know, this project, um, it, it actually took place at the South Pole. Um, looking back into into history, looking for signals from space, um, and it almost won you a Nobel Prize. Um, right. Tell us a little bit, of, little bit about what what would it be like to be a researcher at at the South Pole, looking into to space with things like that. Yeah, so it's uh, it's still very vivid to me. You know, I've been there twice to South Pole, Antarctica. So the South Pole is actually the very most bottom axis of the Earth, where the Earth's axis of, ro of rotation 
comes out in the southern hemisphere, uh, mm-hmm. and it's located on the continent of Antarctica as opposed to the North Pole, which is not located on the continent whatsoever. So if you go right. to the North Pole and drill through the ice, um, you will find ocean water. So there's no land there. But if you drill through the 10,000 feet thick ice shelf that's at the South Pole, eventually you'll hit rock and you'll hit a continental shelf. Our continent's called Antarctica. The South Pole is more or less located on a geometric center of that continent. Uh, but being there is any other place I'd ever been. Um, it was uh, it was completely frigid. It was blindingly white. It's completely flat and featureless. The horizon has no features, no mountains, no no life forms, no penguins. There's a misconception that penguins all over the place. The <laughs> uh, there are no penguins. There's nothing that is alive there uh, besides the scientists that work there and call the place home. And in fact, it's a very special continent because it's the only one of the seven continents that you can only get access to, under most circumstances, unless you're a tourist, um, the, the only way you get access to it is if you're a scientist or somebody who's working with scientists, a carpenter, plumbers, et cetera, that work to build the facilities in which we have to live. There's pilots down there uh, that fly us around and get us to where we need to go. And there's parts of Antarctica that have fewer people you know, living in a, in a tent than are on the International Space Station. And they might wow. stay there. And some some of the bases in the south and the and the Antarctic have um, you know have you know just a few people, and they're staying there for the entire winter because you really can't get aircraft in and out during the winter at, in the southern hemisphere, which is you know basically starts in uh, in March, March twenty first or so, and ends in September. So that period of time from March to September, the sun is below the horizon the whole time. Conversely. Yeah. From March, from September to March, the sun is up the whole time, and that's the only time I was there. Is is in the month of December and January and a little February, and that's when the sun is up 24 hours a day, and, and it just makes a gigantic circle over your head, slowly arcing. Cool. It is. It, it's an amazing place to be. Yeah. Um, so I, I mean, I was, I'm listening to all that and thinking, what kid wouldn't want to, you know, sit in your classroom? What kid wouldn't want to say, I want to be a scientist and go study and, and live in Antarctica, you know, and, and, and you can live there for a day, right? And it's a, a, a the sun, sun goes up and the sun goes down. It's been a whole year. It's one. Right. And you get, right? you get paid. We pay the person that spends the winter, his or her winter there. Uh, that person's called the winter over and we pay him or her about $75,000 for one night of work. It's not a bad yeah. deal. Yeah, that's great. I, I think we'd all take that, especially as, <laughs> And on our teacher's salaries. So, um, right. <laughs> so, so you were, you were doing some research, you're looking out into space, looking for, uh, for signals from, from time and space. Um, and, and you thought you found something, um, and, and the chatters, the, the excitement of saying, wow, all that wonder that I had as a kid, now I'm finding these, these experiments, getting them to work just like your little kid walking around the house with his experiment. Um, and, and, and there was even chatter about winning a Nobel Prize. I mean, how cool right. would that be? Yeah, I mean, when I thought about making the experiment, it really was, you know, never far from the front of my mind that if I was successful and if my team that I was helping to lead were successful, that we would, you know, have as a result, not only the deepest possible understanding of the beginning of time, but also mm-hmm. a Nobel Prize. And the Nobel Prize is sort of, you know, the, the really the highest accolade that, I think all of society has to offer. It really yeah. it's recognized the best scientists in the world, the best artists, 
people that try to make peace, economists, things like that. Um, right. You know, for the past hundred and and sixteen years, it's been given away. Uh, and so to be in that company of sort of immortal scientists uh, was was very intoxicating to me as a, as a young uh, student, a graduate student. So after I got my undergraduate bachelor's degree, I went to Brown University to get my PhD. And that was really kind of the, the first day I got to school at Brown from, to begin my PhD studies. An experiment won the Nobel Prize. And the experiment had been conducted by a gentleman who at the time was a graduate student himself. And so he was just okay. the same age I was back then in, in the 1990s. And he won the Nobel Prize in, 19, in the 1990s for work he did when he was 22 or 23, the same age I was at the time. So it was just, and it was for an astronomical discovery. So I realized, wow, somebody my age can do something that can change the world and become immortally famous or, you know, it's, it's uh, throughout scientific history. So it was too good to be true to, to yeah. not. Right. And it's not like getting a participation trophy or medal because they don't they don't just hand them out to everybody. I mean, it's, no. it's really, tough, really tough to get one. So you guys you guys presented your research. It was on the, you know, the front page of newspapers all around the world. And then something happened. Right. And this is part of what what you wrote a book about called Losing the Nobel Prize. And, and, and that tells the story right about about your your time at the South Pole and, and this whole process. Right. Yeah, so what happened, I tried to weave throughout the book a little bit of a description of how science and scientists are often just as susceptible to sort of irrational forces or forces that are, um, you know, above the, the line of logic and reason that scientists are usually associated with, namely that we have biases and prejudices uh, like any other person. So the, the stereotype I like the least is that scientists are just dispassionate robots that go wherever the wherever the data takes them and they have no agendas right. of now you know i mean luckily what i do is pretty apolitical i mean there aren't like republican astronomers and democratic astronomers, and that's one of the best <laughs> because there's so much saturation of politics in our culture that i need a space that's free of politics in order to just maintain my sanity so that's what i love nobody ever wakes up and says i hate those republican constellations those really stink um but <laughs> By the same token, we also have the same uh, foibles that, uh, that, that any other human being has, namely that we, we want to prove things right and we want to disprove other things. We have competitors and we, and we don't play nicely with, with others sometimes. We have jealousies and, and so forth. And one of the things that I think we realized um, you know, from an early age, early time in this project called BICEP, this telescope at the South Pole, was that if we were successful, we'd win a Nobel Prize. And I think yeah. that, you know, it was always in the back of our minds. It wasn't the foremost reason to do the experiment. But along the right. way, when we made this discovery uh, that we announced um, um, on St. Patrick's Day 2014, and, you know, whenever I say that, people say, oh, St. Patrick's Day. I know what went wrong in that announcement. You, know, you guys were a little bit too much drinky, drinky. But no, that wasn't the problem uh, at all. In fact, it was it was a much more humble substance than, than anything else. It was mainly there was dust that we knew about in the Milky Way galaxy, there's, in addition to planets and, and stars and, and clusters of stars, et cetera, there's also mm -hmm. things called nebulae, nebula, um, and, and these are vast harbors of gas clouds with molecular gases within them, like hydrogen, nitrogen. Um, there even is some alcohol in some of these clusters, but it also has a lot okay. of particles like dust, like particles of silicon, carbon, iron, 
nickel. Yeah. These are the uh, the particles that are really the exciting debris fragments of an exploding star that took place called a supernova. Perhaps you know billions of years earlier in our galaxy, uh, our galaxy has about one such explosion every hundred years or so, and the galaxy is is about you know probably you know at least about ten billion years old or five to ten billion years old. So this gal our galaxy is littered literally with with fragments of the debris of failed or exploded stars rather. And these these uh, particles that are produced can also produce the exact same signal that mimics the signal that we were looking for, that we thought uh, would be okay. the hallmark of the Big Bang's first moments. And this is called cosmic dust, and and it's spoken about very little, and we were aware of it, but we sort of overlooked it because we 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 convinced ourselves that we had ruled it out with the best yep. model and technology that we had. But uh, but we had no way of actually going into space and vacuuming it up, uh, and so, right, so yeah, that's exactly. that's it's a very challenging measurement to make, and we overlooked the 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 the, the most humble substance in the universe. Despite our efforts to get rid of it by by looking at data from other projects and and also from doing uh, very consistent modeling of our data results, we we had claimed that we saw the beginning of time. In reality. Most of what we saw was probably this this very pervasive substance called cosmic dust. Yeah. So, um, just thinking that through as a, as an educator, um, just thinking how important it is for kids when they're when they're making research, when they're making hypotheses and and conclusions in in a classroom, uh, they need to be careful. They they need to be careful to to take their time, not be in a hurry to 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 produce something. So. But, but Brian Keating, we're chatting with Brian Keating, again, um, author of Losing the Nobel Prize, which uh, is available everywhere. Um, definitely check it out. Um, but but for you, you took it as a lesson. You took it as a, okay, this is something I can learn from that going forward. And and I can warn other other scientists about um, and, and make the world really a better place at the same time. Yeah, I think it's important to realize that, you know, we didn't make a blunder. I would say we didn't leave the lens cap on the telescope, you know, which I have to do. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we didn't make a blunder in that sense. We, we basically were victims of our own uh, confirmation bias, which, you know, the great physics uh, Nobel Prize winner Richard Feynman said, you know, the most important or the first principle of being a good scientist is that you must not fool yourself. And you have to always think that you're the easiest person to fool. And if you maintain those kind of that, that kind of thought process, I think you can be aware of the propensity that we have to want to kind of confirm results that we expect and maybe discard results that, that don't agree with our hypothesis a little bit too easily. This takes place a lot, and it's especially hard in, in cosmology. So your teachers and students that are listening, they might do an experiment, say, you know, my favorite example is like a frog or a fruit fly. Let me just use a, a lower yeah. organism. So you have a fruit fly, you're doing an experiment, you expose it to UV light, and then, but you have a controlled fruit fly that you don't do that to. And then you compare, your hypothesis is that, you know, too much exposure will kill the fruit fly. And and in that yeah. case, compare that, you know, your hypothesis to a dead, you see, if you see a dead fruit fly, compare it to a live fruit fly or something else. You might alter its DNA or something. Um, yeah. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a biologist, but but it, 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 <laughs> that's okay. What makes it so hard to do cosmology, especially cosmology, but even astronomy? I can't go to the sun and turn up ultraviolet light that the sun puts out 
and then ask, well, what does that do to water vapor on the moon of Saturn called Titan? I, I can't do an experiment in astronomy. But at least there's many different moons, there's many different planets, there's many different stars in our, in our galaxy and in the universe. However, there is only one universe that we know of for sure. And so how do you do an experiment when there's only one of something and there's no control, it's called a control, to do what right. is a, a double-blind test? And I think yeah. that's part of what it means to be a scientist is to have integrity and to admit, which we did. We, we had a great deal of integrity in this result. It was just the interpretation that we made uh, was uh, went beyond what the data would support. And we, I think, were in part biased by what we wanted to see. We wanted to see that, that there was a signal from the Big Bang. And in fact, it was yeah. this very humble substance called dust. Yeah. Well, Brian, um, I, I know you got to get going. You're, uh, you're a busy guy. You probably got to, you know, go in, invent or uh, discover something else here. Um, and I want I want, to, I want to thank you for joining us on the show today. Yeah, it's been a great pleasure to be with you. Yeah, um, again, uh, Brian Keating, check him out uh, on the internet, briankeating.com or at Dr. Brian Keating on Twitter. Um, and check out his book, Losing Nobel Prize. You might have some kids that are, um, you know, maybe a, a little more advanced level that, that are going to learn a little bit from, from a, a story like that. Or if, or if you're uh, definitely an educator that's interested in, in STEM. Um, yeah, check I, I, I really do love it. I love going in the, and visiting with people. We go into high schools, and I actually make it a point for all my students that they do go to high schools and they do go to um, work with undergraduates, et cetera, because I think part of being a good scientist is communicating what we do. And if you can do so in a humorous, lighthearted, fun way, you're going to stop the, the, the people that would otherwise leave the field and it's important, you know, that we have the greatest number of, you know, young minds and and just a great diversity of opinions and, and viewpoints in what we do. Yeah, and and I would also echo. I mean, you are a hilarious guy, Brian. Um, if if you get the chance to watch uh, Brian's uh, TED talk, it is um, it is pretty pretty hilarious. The penguin scene is was was my favorite. Um, that's all I'm saying. So you'll have to. You'll have to. You guys will just have to go and listen, watch it. It's uh, it's great. So thank you, Chris. Um, Brian, it's been great chatting with you. Uh, thanks again for being on the show today, Brian Keating. Um, again, check out his book, Losing the Nobel Prize, and um, encourage your kids to to make those discoveries, but but be careful. Um, yes, and to, that's right. And and not just try to win a prize. Um, that's right. The science the, the science that you get to do is the prize. It's the puzzle. It's the it's the thrill of discovery, and you can have it again and again in your career if you just stay curious. The thrill of discovery, that's, that's, that's what it's all about. So uh, thanks again for joining us on this episode of the STEM Everyday Podcast. Check out all the great podcasts. Subscribe to it on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, and we'll talk to you again next time. You're listening to this podcast on the ESDAC Broadcasting Network. To find more information about this or other podcast shows, please visit RemarkableChatter.com.